since 1993 when I was born. And, uh, and he's so incredibly a lot hugely older than me. And uh, no, no, I was born in 66. And, uh, and he's a he hero to uh, like, like y'all are. He has infectious. But I don't want to read his bio because I've, I've seen him in action and I've seen him in action when he's not even there. And I, I want to tell you this true, true stories. Um, but first I want to say, Father Pavone is a warrior when we are at war. Yeah. He has stepped into the breach. He has put his money where his mouth is and he's been persecuted for it. Yes. And thank God you have. Because Jesus Christ didn't say you might be persecuted in my name. He said you will be persecuted in my name. And if we aren't seeing people literally foam at the mouth, which I did. Father Pavone and I have been to some places, but I've never been to Ohio with him to my knowledge. And I was there with Bud McFarlane and we, there was this pro-abort woman with half her head shaved. And I really wanted to say, when are they going to finish your haircut? But I thought that <laughs> I did want to say that. That's, that. I told you. Help me. Pray for me. <laughs> and um, that was mean, but I thought it. And it's not confession. I did confession. Um, and um, I even confessed that I thought it was funny. And uh, <laughs> so, so she was terrible. I felt so bad for her. She wasn't even, like, scary. She was so pathetic. And she was... She had an I do me, you do you shirt on and said I shout my abortion in the back. And she was, had a boombox and she was playing satanic music every time we did anything to, and it was loud. And there was a nun there who had brought the, the middle schoolers. And it was such an amazing difference between, this is about Father Pavone, by the way. Um, <laughs> so it was such an amazing difference between this nun and, and true womanhood. And thank God Mary said yes, right? And, um, and this other woman. They both did know they were women, though. That, they had that going for them. And um, the, um, at the end, um, we pulled out Father Pavone's prayer card and read his prayer for life, pro-life prayer. And she began shaking. And, and like, I mean, it wasn't foaming like a dog with rabies or anything. It wasn't like uh, what that, that book is where they just shoot the poor dog at the old yeller. But, I mean, she was definitely like spitting and foaming, and she stopped, and she stopped, and, and, and I don't know whether you can bilocate, Father, but it was awesome. And, and, and uh, the prayer stopped her dead in her tracks. And, and I've seen the power of this man when he's with you and when he's not. And so it's right that when he walks in, you know, y'all love him and, and, and pray for him and get pictures with him. But remember, all of us, all of us need to be warriors like Father Bone. We all need to step into the breach because the breach is wide. Even if it's only six weeks, it's wide. How many babies is that? How many babies is that? You know, y'all have aborted 15% of your population. Y'all have aborted 2 million Georgians. Only 11 million Georgians in Georgia. Y'all have aborted 2 million Georgians. And this man is going to stop it all over the country and all over the world. So it's my pleasure to both be with Father Pavone, whoever I and to introduce him, Father Frank Pavone. All right. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks. Oh, wow. Thank you, Matt. Uh, well, that was wonderful. And thank all of you, brothers and sisters, for the enthusiastic welcome. It is great to be back in Georgia.
it was so nice to see Alvita there. You know, she has worked full time on our Priest for Life team for 16 years. She and I first met in 1999, and uh, it was at a New York State Right to Life uh, conference. And we were both uh, on the speaking agenda there. And we each heard each other uh, talk. And we knew from that day that, wow, we're on the same page here. We got to work together. I was quoting her uncle, and, and she was talking uh, about abortion. And, and our, our relationship has only grown ever since. So uh, uh, it's great to have her as such an integral part of the movement. Brothers and sisters, um, we have been together many times in different scenarios. Many of you have been to the uh, March for Life. We've been at different conferences. Uh, as many of you have reminded me about different times that we've seen each other at different churches. And now we can be together as a movement. And for the first time since most of us have been involved in this movement, we can declare Roe v. Wade is no more. Hallelujah. And let me tell you, we only are at the very beginning of the process of absorbing this victory, even of understanding it. You know, many people, of course, are talking about, you know, what do we do as a movement post Roe versus Wade? What do we do next? How do things change? The first thing we need to do and we are only at the very beginning of doing it, is to step back and study and understand what just happened. What did the court do? What did the court say? What did it not do and not say? And what road did the court itself open up for us and point us to? Because you know, when you read Supreme Court decisions, they're not only looking back at what has just been argued, but they give you pointers. Uh, they, these decisions give advice to the people about whose dispute they are issuing a ruling. So we've got a lot to understand about this Dobbs decision, and I want to touch upon a couple of things with you here, from a, but, but from a spiritual point of view, because you can read the Dobbs decision from a spiritual vantage point, and you can see bubbling up there from the Supreme Court itself something that is actually at the heart of the pro-life movement, something that is actually at the foundation of 40 Days for Life, something that is at the heart of the response that each and every one of us gives to the tragedy of abortion. And that something is repentance. I wrote a book back in 2015 called Abolishing Abortion. And it was a manifesto of what does the church and what does the state need to do next to end abortion. It's, it's, it's a book that I know some of you have read. I know you all of you would enjoy. You can just go to abolishingabortion.com and you'll find it. But I bring that book up because one of the early chapters in it asks the question, what is our first spiritual duty when it comes to ending abortion? And many people would say prayer. And prayer, of course, is at the foundation, right? That's this movement, pray to end abortion. 
But the, there's a spiritual duty that comes just before prayer. And that actually constitutes its, its foundation. And that is repentance. What we need to do first is repent. We repent of sin. We all abort God's will in various ways, right? Every time we say no to him, every time we rebel, we are aborting God's will. And repentance is to turn away from the sin we committed, to turn away in our mind what, what we once thought was okay, we realize, no, that was not okay. We're not going to tolerate it anymore by even thinking uh, that it was okay. And then we, we turn our will around and, and we start walking in the opposite direction. That's repentance, right? And it doesn't mean if we fall again that the repentance wasn't sincere. That, it just, that just indicates that we're weak. So we repent, we as a people repent of the sin of abortion. Now many people will hear that and say, yeah, but I never committed the sin of abortion. How can I repent of it? Well, we actually can. If you go to the book of Deuteronomy, in the 21st chapter, there is a ritual that God ordained for his people to carry out if they were to find a corpse on the land. Somebody was killed, they find the body. God told them, you have to do something in response to that. Because innocent blood has been shed on the land. Remember, God gave them the land, right? So the land was sacred and was a, itself a physical representation of God's love and his fidelity. The land was holy, and, and the land was polluted, Scripture says, when innocent blood falls on it. So God said, well, you have to do something. If you find a corpse, get the priests, get the people, go there to that place. You have to measure the distance first to the nearest city, wherever the nearest city is. Go there and pray this prayer. Lord, our hands did not shed this blood. Our eyes did not see this deed. Forgive, O Lord, the guilt of innocent blood. Absolve your people. Interesting thing about that. God is telling them to ask forgiveness for a sin they didn't commit. Because they're saying right at the outset, we didn't do this. But then they're going ahead and saying, oh Lord, forgive your people. It wasn't just the individual who killed that person that incurs the guilt of the innocent blood. Somehow, if the blood falls on the, on the ground, everyone living in the land has to answer for it. And again, people might say, oh, but that's not fair. No, no, it's the idea of community. God saved a people. He created a people. He created a people of old entered into a covenant relationship with them, and then he created a new people, us, entered into a covenant relationship with us in the blood of Christ. We're in this together. Yes, sin remains an individual evil, but there is also this community dimension whereby if someone is killed in our midst, we all have to answer for it. 
We all have to repent. We all have to turn to the Lord and start moving the community in the opposite direction. This is, this is profound when you think about it in regard to abortion. Why does the other side keep emphasizing just, it's just the woman. It's just the woman's issue. It's just up to her. And they try to, I, notice how their whole philosophy, both ethic, ethical philosophy, legal philosophy, it, it's all to isolate that woman, to isolate her. As if this choice is only brought about by her. Nonsense. Most abortions in the United States aren't even her choice. It's someone else pushing her. It's someone else failing her. It's someone else forcing her, or at least the push of circumstances, making her do something she doesn't want to do. It's not about freedom of choice. It's about feeling you have no freedom and no choice. You don't go to the abortion clinic because of freedom. You go there because of the coercive power of despair. You don't go there because there's a whole bunch of people that want you to go there. You're going there because you feel completely isolated. And I have nowhere else to turn. I don't have anywhere to go, anyone to reach out to, to prevent me from doing something I really don't want to do and I already know is wrong. That's why, first of all, the presence that you give and that you foster in this great campaign is in and of itself saving lives. Why does 40 Days for Life save lives? Because the presence of God's people there, by its very definition, undoes isolation. It's the opposite of isolation. It's presence. There's multiple people there. She knows why you're there. Even if you didn't have any signs, even if you weren't saying any words, even if there were no sidewalk counselors to talk to her, just seeing you there, two or three, or 20 or 30, or two or 300, whatever the number is, your presence there breaks the isolation. I'm not alone. She gets that message loud and clear because she sees you there. I'm not alone, I'm not alone. How many women don't even stop their car? They're going to the abortion mill, they see people praying outside, they know why you're there. They don't even stop their car, a lot of them. Don't even stop their car. That's why when we stand there and say, gee, I wonder how many, I didn't know how many, I didn't see anybody turn around today. That doesn't mean anything if you didn't see them turn around. Because you don't know that the car that passed by you was supposed to stop there. And they didn't. Or you can take the testimony of Mark Bomchill, who was former abortion security guard from the Twin Cities. I got to know him many, many years ago. Uh, well, way before 40 Days for Life. And he said, uh, he said, yeah, he said, you know what we used to do? When the women changed their minds, we led them out the back door instead of the front door because we didn't want to see the pro-life people. We didn't, want, we didn't want the pro-life people out front to see that she had changed her mind. They deliberately hide it from us. But your presence there breaks the isolation and is often the answer to the prayer they say that day, Lord, if I, you don't want me to do this, send somebody to tell me to stop. Because sadly, her family, her friends, people who should have been telling her not to do this, failed. So we're stepping in and we're... We're, we're succeeding where they failed. We're doing what they should have done. And if they had done it, maybe she wouldn't have gone there in the first place. Repentance involves the whole community. Lord, our hands did not see this deed. Our, eyes did, uh, uh, our hands did not do this deed. Our eyes did not see this bloodshed. 
Yeah, but we, we can't even say that because we know where the abortions are happening and when. They're scheduled. They're publicly advertised. We know the killing centers and we know the killing hours. We've got even more responsibility to repent as a community. That's one of the things this campaign does. It's a campaign of repentance. And this is why there's such a beautiful a partnership, by the way, with between the 40 days and our project at Priests for Life in conjunction with Anglicans for Life that many of you are uh, aware of, the Silent No More campaign. That those who have been through, we also oversee Rachel's Vineyard, so Jody and I, we're connected a lot over many years, and, and Jody is uh, you know, active in these, in these healing ministries, as many of you know. If you don't know, go see her before you leave tonight. She's got a lot of good information there. Um, and, and this is happening throughout the country and around the world. But the beautiful partnership is such that this is a campaign of repentance and prayer that then leads to community outreach. The woman who has had an abortion, the man who has pushed for an abortion, the grandparents who may be the ones most guilty pushing for the abortion in many instances, the friend who, who, who brought uh, her friend to get the abortion, all these people, even the abortionists, the clinic staff, what are they doing? They get to the point, many of them, where they repent, they seek healing, and then some of those who find healing want to share their stories. Isn't that what we see in the Gospels? People are healed by the Lord. And even in some cases where the Lord told them to keep quiet about it, they go out and they want to tell everybody. Not only because it's an overflow of their joy, but because they know that other people in their life can use that healing and deserve to find that healing as well. Silent no more. Those that have had abortions and want to tell the world, A, how they were deceived into thinking it was a solution when it wasn't. B, how they found the healing and the peace and how it devastated their lives nonetheless. You find healing and peace, but you've still lost so much. The healing programs do not bring the child back. They don't necessarily bring back the broken relationships. You've lost a lot and people don't realize how much they have lost. I mean, the individual comes to realize it more and more, but people around them do not realize how much the person who has aborted her child has lost. That's why they want to give testimony. That's why they'll hold the signs that say, I regret my abortion. The fathers will hold the signs that say, I regret lost fatherhood. You know who else holds signs at the rallies that we do with Silent No More? And, and, and again, often they are combined with the 40 days vigils. So at the vigils, you'll have people there with their silent no more signs. You also have the grandparents holding signs saying, I mourn my aborted grandchild. And you know who else comes and joins us in these rallies? Siblings. We have a sign for the siblings. I mourn my aborted sibling. Try to enter for a moment into the mind and heart of a young person who comes to realize that mommy had my brother or my sister killed. We don't, we, we, you know, we really, we're only beginning to understand how that affects them 
I mean, that's scary because these mommy and daddy, they're the ones you're, you're relying on for your very life. And they killed your sibling. It's like it raises the question pretty immediately, what are they going to do to me? What if they stop loving me? It's, this is scary. This is damaging for our young people. Uh, the other relatives, the friends, as I mentioned, the abortionists, what does all of this do? By being silent no more, and, and I want you to, to uh, um, take this as an invitation to really pay some extra attention this coming year, because this is the 20th anniversary, by the way, this, this, this coming year of the Silent No More campaign. For 20 years, a worldwide, nationwide, worldwide, it has been giving this platform for people to share their stories. And because what they're doing is they're, they're inviting everyone to repent of abortion. Get to know it more. You can go to silentnomore.com, very simple, silentnomore.com. You'll see the place where you can read all the testimonies. You can see the videos of them. You can download the texts of them. I encourage my brother clergy to preach quote from these testimonies. Um, you know, Christianity itself progresses through the centuries by testimony, right? Jesus himself is the testimony of the Father. What did Paul do? He gave testimony to his conversion. And then through Christian history, St. Augustine, the confessions, right? His testimony about God intervening in his life and bringing him to what? Repentance. So we have here a, a powerful campaign. But you know what one of the things is that it does? Think about it this way. Again, you look at what the other side always tries to do. Isolation. It's about autonomy. It's one of their favorite words. Auto, auto means one, right? Self. It's, it's, it's you're just yourself doing it. You're completely isolated from anybody else. Autonomy. No, it's not like that. The mythology that the other side keeps trying to perpetrate is that the abortion decision only affects the decider. The choice of abortion only affects the one making the choice. How on earth can that possibly be? First of all, they, they, they try to make people think that the choice of abortion, first of all, they're trying to make people think it's a choice to begin with. It's not. It's an act of desperation. Secondly, they're trying to say, to the, and as much as it's a choice, it's a choice that just originates with the chooser. Nonsense. More often than not, it originated with somebody else. That's why when you're counseling somebody not to have an abortion, it's not enough to talk to her. Who are the decision makers? You can persuade, you can show her a baby, you can convince her that help is available. You, yeah, I know it's wrong, I know it's wrong, I want the help. But then she's got the guy pulling her in the wrong direction. She talks to you, she, oh yeah, this is great, or you're in a pregnancy center, oh yeah, you know, she's on the right track. She goes home and he's hammering her like crazy. You're gonna get that abortion. Him or her parents, who knows who else it is. The evil, we gotta find out who are the deciders here. We gotta strengthen her. Then we've gotta give her the tools to influence the other deciders. The choice does not originate with her, it's not autonomy. And the effects are not, the implications are not just on her. There are relationships all around her, 360 degrees, that are damaged, devastated, destroyed by that abortion. And it'll take a lifetime of work 
to heal, and some won't heal at all. It'll take, you know, until we get to the last day in the resurrection before the, some of these things are healed. And you see this when you see the beautiful symphony of healing, as I call it, when we've got these rallies at which you've got a mom repenting, publicly sharing her story, a dad, the grandparents, the friends, the former abortionists, the siblings. We've had gatherings, we have all those different groups together at the same time, and the healing and the repentance of each one as they verbalize it, as they vocalize it, as they proclaim it, facilitates the healing and the repentance of all the rest. It's a beautiful thing, a symphony of healing. That's the culture of life. That then has to affect the way the whole community continues to repent of abortion. When we go in front of those abortion mills, we are doing several things at once, right? We are directly responding to the lives of those children. We are being the last line of defense to that mom and dad or grandparents who are coming there and don't know that there's other help available. But you know what we're also doing? Well, of course, we're strengthening ourselves. We're strengthening one another as we gather together there. But we are sounding an alarm to the rest of the community. And I want to focus on that for a few moments here as well. This is a public campaign for a reason. I mean, there are ways now, the movement is becoming more and more sophisticated, where we're able to target, whether by um, the kind of electronic targeting using cell phones and, and knowing where people are going. I mean, we can target people electronically that way online. The sophistication by which the movement is connecting with abortion-minded people online is growing every day. But there's no substitute, brothers and sisters, while all that good work continues to grow, there's no substitute for the simple public witness that you give, that we give, when we're standing on the sidewalk. We are putting ourselves in the path of uh, 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 not only those going to get the abortions, what about everybody else there in the community, the neighbors, the other businesses on that street? They all need to know, because a lot of them we find often do not know that there is killing going on in that building and that they too have to repent. Blood is being shed on the land that they're walking on every day. They have to repent. What does that mean? Lord, that's my brother, that's my sister. Not just somebody else's child, somebody else's choice, somebody else's problem. I repent of not having done more, Lord God, because that's my brother, my sister being aborted today. And that's my brother and sister who are in such despair that they think they have to bring their child here to be killed that they're mine. These are not just somebody else's children. And the more we can get people to understand that, the more they will be able to respond to the, to the ridiculous, uh, 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 and you see how consistent they are, the ridiculous assertion from the other side saying to us, this is none of your business. How many people that are not involved in 40 Days for Life, not involved in the pro-life movement at all. How many of those people think abortion is wrong? 
Most of them do. It, 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 that's not the problem. They think it's wrong. They think it's terrible. They would never do it. The poison, or the blockade, if you will, between those good thoughts that they have and them getting involved in the movement is another idea that comes in and messes everything up. And that idea is, oh, but it's none of my business. I would never do it. I can even hope that others won't do it. But if somebody does decide to do it, who am I to interfere? We have been conditioned so much to think this way. It's even the reason why a lot of the clergy don't speak up about this. What, a, what business is it of mine? Oh, we can tell you what business it is of yours. But before we say that to the clergy, what business is it of us? Who am I? Well, you are the brother, you are the sister of that unborn child. You are a human being who understands that when another human being is in danger or in need, you try to help them. And you are a follower of the one who said, whatsoever you do or fail to do, to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do, you fail to do to me. That's Christ in the womb. That's Jesus about to be aborted. Just like we look at the poor and we say, that's Christ. And we look at the imprisoned and say, that's Christ too. And we repent every day. And we are called to repent every day of not having spoken more and done more and given more and sacrificed more for this cause. Now, the Supreme Court just engaged in an act of repentance. If you read the Dobbs decision, and I, I want to ask you to do so, just like Matt did also, Read that decision. We have a special website, by the way, supremecourtvictory.com, which will help you understand this decision. One of the best single places you can go. You'll see all kinds of videos, read all kinds of explanations. And you can read this document from a spiritual vantage point. Because the justices said, first of all, we, now we as an institution, okay, the Supreme Court, these justices, and I know some of them personally, they have a, a, a deep sense of the, the court as an institution and a deep sense of their responsibility to guard that institution. And so there's, you have to understand, in their thinking, when they're issuing these decisions, they're, they're, there's, a, there's a sense of the the unity, even though there were completely different justices there at the time of Roe, there's a deep sense of the, the unity of this institution right from its very inception. And they said in this decision, we were wrong. You have to understand how, how bold this was of the justices who were in the majority to say, and we were wrong. And by the way, I want to echo also, Matt, men Matt mentioned it, but I want to say it too. Because I served on the advisory committee for President Trump, both in his 2016 uh, election and in 2020, uh, I served on two advisory committees for Catholic issues and for pro-life issues. And uh, we knew that this man was going to do more than anyone else uh, had ever done in the White House. And you might remember, in 2020, in October, he was asked a question about the Supreme Court and about Roe v. Wade. I'm sorry, not 2020. This is going back to um, 2016. 
in October of 2016, he was asked, well, sir, do you want Roe v. Wade to be reversed? And this was his response. I'm going to quote him verbatim. If I get to a point, two or three justices to the Supreme Court, the reversal of Roe v. Wade will happen automatically. That's what he said. And boy, did he hit the nail on the head. And he, and he knew that. He, he could say that. Because he knew the kinds of men and women he was ready to nominate to the court. And that he in fact did. Men and women who believe that the role of the justice and the role of the court is to apply the Constitution of the United States. Not their own personal preferences and opinions and judgments. That's the difference. And that, in you, when you read the Dobbs decision, it says in a number of different places. First of all, we were wrong and we were egregiously wrong when we issued Roe v. Wade. They said, furthermore, this has done tremendous damage. Now, when you think of the damage, you and I think primarily of the babies that were killed and the moms and the dads and the families that were injured. Yeah, that damage is there and those justices know it, but they were talking about also another kind of damage. The damage to our American system of government when the court took away from us the right to determine how this issue would be resolved and what kind of protection the unborn would have. They took that out of our hands. Unelected judges decided that no baby in the womb could be protected, at least up until viability. They took the right away from us to protect our own children. They took the right away from the Congress. They took it away from the state legislatures. They took it away from the towns and city councils. They took it away from us all. That's damaging, and it damaged our whole process of government. Look how it corrupted the Supreme Court judicial confirmation process. What was all that crazy behavior with the Kavanaugh confirmation ultimately all about? It was about abortion. And I'm not just saying that myself. My friend Carrie Severino and Molly Hemingway wrote a book called Justice on Trial, all about the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. That's the conclusion they came to. They researched, they talked to everybody, they researched every document. And they came to that conclusion too. In fact, Justice Clarence Thomas, God bless him, who was one of the majority in, in Dobbs, right? What a great man he is. I know him and his wife, Ginny. Some of you may know them too. These are, these are, these are tremendous people. And when, when Clarence Thomas went through his confirmation hearings in the 90s, early 90s, and that whole, you remember that whole, whole fiasco, right? Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a documentary out. I hope you watch it. Um, it's called Created Equal. It's Thomas, in his own words, talking about his life. It's a fantastic film, Created Equal. You know what he says? In that confirmation hearing, the Senate Judiciary Committee, oh, and by the way, the Judiciary Committee at that time was headed by a certain man yes. by the name of Brandon. And Clarence Thomas said, they were concerned above all with one question. How would I rule on Roe versus Wade? That's what he says in this film. So it, it corrupted our whole system of governance, of, of court nominations, all, all different things. But now the justices said, we are returning to the people what we took away. We are restoring to the people the right 
to battle this out. And there, and there, there, there are many passages in the Dobbs case that express a profound humility. Because what the justices said is, it's the legislatures that are best suited to work out a, an issue, a contentious issue like this, where there are many arguments on both sides, where emotions run deep. Because you can have hearings, and you can have amendments, and you have legislative debates, and you take all the time you need to take, instead of just the nine of us on this court, or judges on other courts, issuing some kind of a decision. We don't have the fact-finding capability. I mean, you've got 50 state legislatures, plus the United States Congress. There's a lot of firepower there. There's a lot of people who can call in a lot of experts and hash out a lot of arguments and take the time they need to craft a policy. We should have never taken it away from the people. And when we took it away, we violated a basic principle of this court, they went on to say, which is that when we talk about liberties and when we talk about privacy and when we talk about autonomy, we should never read into those things which are concepts that can be used to justify an awful lot of stuff, we should never read into those things our personal preferences as judges rather than the actual provisions of the law and the Constitution. And where in the history of the Constitution or the history of American law was there ever a right to abortion asserted? And they said, nowhere. It's not there. So we're sorry. They said, we're sorry. In fact, the Supreme Court even said in 1992, when the Casey decision upheld Roe, although it dismantled it quite a bit as well and did not endorse its reasoning, but it upheld the, the central holding of Roe, you still couldn't protect babies up until viability. You know what the court said at that time to the American people? Settle down, stop arguing about abortion, accept the mandate of the court. And the Supreme Court in Dobbs said, you know what? That's what this institution told the American people 20 years, 30 years ago. We shouldn't have done that. It didn't work. They gave, in other words, a, compliment, a big compliment to this movement. They said to us, we ordered the American people to stop arguing about abortion. They didn't listen to us. They kept protesting it. They kept raising their voices. They kept marching. They kept educating. They kept voting. And here it is. We are as divided on this as we've ever been. So basically the court said, OK, we're done with this. They did not take, and this is very important to explain to your friends and relatives, by the way. The Dobbs court did not take a position on how many rights or how much protection the unborn should have. They did not take a position on that. But the ruling is in our favor because what they did was they did take away, they did undo the position that Roe took. Because Roe said they have no rights, up until viability at least, they have no rights. They don't even have them afterwards. If a state wants to have abortion all through nine months, it can do that. So they gave back to us and it's not just to the states, by the way. It's also to the US Congress. It's also to your city council. It's to the people and their elected representatives. That's the phrase. That's all up and down, all the levels of government. Notice again, because I'm going to make one more point here. To the people and their elected 
representatives. 48 hours. By the way, we the American people deserve an answer 48 hours from now, not 48 days from now. Forty-eight hours from now, we as a country who planted our flag on the moon, who gave the world the most sophisticated technology and inventions that have changed our lives, should be able to accurately and completely count our ballots at the end of one day, election day. That's it. It is it is profoundly disturbing that the President of the United States has gotten up in front of the American people and told us in a condescending way, oh, well, you're going to have to be patient. It might take some days. Why? What do you know that we're not supposed to know? This, this process should be so transparent that we, if there was going to be some kind of a problem, it should be a problem that we can all see. Absolutely transparent. What happens to your ballot once you count it? We have to be able to see it every step of the way. And, 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 and until we get to that point, we're on a dangerous path because if the electorate loses confidence in the electoral process, the only alternative is tyranny. Because then somebody else is going to be making all the decisions. No, no, no. Somebody, nobody else makes the decisions. We make the decisions. We, the people, govern ourselves. That's what this is about. Now, I want to say, Georgia, all right, you're going to lead the way. You're going to lead the nation once again. Once again, because, brothers and sisters, the Senate is 50-50, right? I don't care if the town clown is running for Senate. <laughs> I, I, at this point, if I lived in Georgia, if I lived, you know, we have a Senate race in Florida too, it's gonna go well for Marco Rubio, but if I lived in Georgia, if I lived in Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin, Ohio, although Ohio's going pretty good, but these, I would be thinking to myself the following thing. In fact, I'll say, I'll say it boldly now. All of us here in this room, just us here in this room, can influence the direction the entire country is going to go in this election. Just, I mean, us here in this room and all the people we here in this room are able to influence, you've got the whole country in your hands right now. Because it's not so much in any of these key states it's not so much the qualities or the lack of qualities of the individual candidates. It's about the balance of power. Why do you think the other side doesn't care that their candidate in Pennsylvania can't even talk? Well, believe me, they don't care. Because they're, yeah, they have a president that can't talk either. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. Did you see what he did? Well, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to, you get me off on a tangent now. Jackie Walorski, I knew Jackie. She was the representative who, who got killed in a car accident over the summer. Did you see? 
Biden is standing there. Was Jackie here? Was Jackie was supposed to come today? What, what on earth is going on here? So in any case, whatever is going on, the reason they don't care, they're electing, and unfortunately this is the case with many issues, you go into the Senate, you look at the votes on abortion, in the House too, it's party line voting. It's party line, so it's like you're electing a voting machine. Now it shouldn't be that way, but the fact of the matter is, as you influence in the next 48 hours, all the Georgia voters you possibly can, and I urge you to do that, make this uh, an effort, use every possible avenue that you can, every ounce of energy, every waking moment, it's the elections, get, the, get, get those voters out. Because brothers and sisters, uh, what direction that Senate goes is gonna determine the judges on our courts, is gonna determine how much legislation they get through, it's going to determine uh, the um, other confirmations to important positions in government. It's going to determine what they do to the legislative filibuster because they're crazy enough to try to get rid of it. They'll try to pack the Supreme Court. They'll try to. They are interested in grabbing as much permanent power as they can. That's what this is about. And you know what else this is about? This is a war not just between left and right, and it's between you know the, the Republican and Democrat. It's between common sense and insanity. And when we can't say that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, maybe it's because for 50 years we've said a baby's not a baby. Isn't it that Roe v. Wade was the original break with reality, right? The, 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 the denial of biological truth. It's, an, oh, it's biological truth that a man is a man. Well, yeah, but it's not any more biologically true that a man is a man than a baby is a baby. So if you decided back 50 years ago that if you didn't want it to be a baby, it's not, you already set us out on the course in which we find ourselves today. You already unleashed on America the insanity that not only are we suffering from, but it's being indoctrinated in our children. Sorry, folks, but that itself should decide the election. I don't want indoctrination of our, of our children in this garbage. It's all, it's all connected, friends. It's, oh, we know this. It's all connected. And it all boils down once again to that spiritual imperative that forms the foundation of this great pro-life movement and of this 40 Days for Life movement, that we repent. Lord, we repent of any way in which we have tried to distort the truth. We repent of any way in which we have failed to rise up to our responsibility that that innocent blood is the blood of our brothers and sisters. I'm responsible. I need to repent. But friends, do it joyfully. We repent, but never with discouragement, never with sadness. We're sorry for our sins, but we rejoice in the Lord always because he is victorious. Are you all in contact with me on social media? I gave you that, that uh, prayer card, by the way. I think that was the prayer, Matt, that, that you said that day that made that woman go crazy. Um, so, so say it each day. It's a prayer to end abortion. But listen, I know that many of you are connected with me on social media. If you're not, I broadcast every single day. 
When I'm not traveling, I say mass online each day, but I have all kinds of, I have our program at night called Praying for America. We're gonna have live commentary Tuesday night, by the way, uh, for election night starting at seven o'clock. And if you go to endabortion.tv, that's a webpage, endabortion.tv, where you'll also see links to my YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, other Getter, uh, we'll be live on Getter, all sorts of other platforms, video platforms where we can be connected every day and I want to urge you to do that and our contact information is also on that card. Uh, let's be in touch because when I make these trips, whether it's with Matt or, or other members of my team, I don't want it to be just that we have a good um, night together and, and, and think about some things. But I, I want it to be a deepening of our ongoing relationship throughout the year. So we're ready to help you. Uh, let's say this prayer as we conclude. Let's stand. And thank you again for having me. Uh, and thank you, uh, Suzanne and Rachel, for your witness. What, what great witnesses they are. I, I, add my, uh, I add my thanks to you to the words, beautiful words that Matt spoke to and to all of you as well. So let's pray. Lord God, I thank you today for the gift of my life and for the lives of all my brothers and sisters. I know there is nothing that destroys more life than abortion. Yet I rejoice that you have conquered death by the resurrection of your son. I am ready to do my part in ending abortion. Today I commit myself never to be silent, never to be passive, never to be forgetful of the unborn. I commit myself to be active in the pro-life movement and never to stop defending life until all my brothers and sisters are protected and our nation once again becomes a nation with liberty and justice, not just for some, but for all. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. Can I just say... Matt Britton and family and Father Pavone, speechless. What human vocabulary can we put to the beautiful words straight from God's heart and mouth to your heart and mouth? Absolutely beautiful, inspiring, incredible, and what a privilege to have you with us.